Hi everyone, I'm Patrick Johnson. And I'm Chante Westmoreland. And this is Do You Even Have a Tech Degree? Hey podcast fans, welcome to another episode of Do You Even Have a Tech Degree? In this week's episode, we sit down with two practitioners in the field of trade secrets. Danielle Decker, a seventh-year associate at Paul Hastings, and Thomas Counts, a partner there. We talk about what it is that they do really in their day-to-day lives and how the industry as a whole works, a peek behind the curtain. We talked about the unique challenges that this mixture of not just technology law, but also business and a little bit of crime fighting These lawyers are juggling to protect their company's secret sauce, so they have to go after people that might have stolen the secrets, yet let the company function efficiency. So, as you'll hear, it's a real fine balancing act. We also talk a little bit about special challenges that occur when working with startups and how they view the field of technology law. So without further ado, I bring you Thomas Counts and Danielle Decker. Enjoy. All right, great. So if you guys could uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves and which firm you're with, and okay. we're happy to have you. So I'm Tom Counts. I'm a partner at Paul Hastings, and uh, I was a Bolt grad of, from 1990, and uh, then have, have worked kind of in technology-related uh, legal field ever since. I, I did take four years off um, from 1999 to 2003, where I was involved um, with a couple startups uh, on the software and technology side. So that's kind of really uh, where I I learned a lot about what it's what it likes to be what it's like to be within a software and technology company. I specialize in really competitive technology uh, litigation. I'm Danielle Decker. I'm also at Paul Hastings. I work with Tom a lot. I've been there. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a seventh year associate. I just just about. And my background, I I went to Berkeley for undergrad. I graduated in 2006, so feels like a long time ago, but not as long as as Tom. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thanks for that. <laughs> and I also specialize in complex commercial litigation working with technology companies, whether it's in trade secret disputes or privacy issues, a lot of business torts um, is my main area of practice at this point. And uh, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't have any swerves in my career like Tom. It was very narrow. I went from high school wanting desperately to be a lawyer to uh, Berkeley, I graduated in psychology. That didn't quite Makes sense, but <laughs> let's you know go with me. Uh, and I then became a paralegal for a year before going to law school. Great, awesome. So you guys gave a talk um, that discussed a little bit about uh, trade secret litigation, and maybe you could just kind of walk us through what is it that you think about whenever you're whenever a client comes to you and says an employee just left, and I'm worried about you know what they might have taken with them. Yeah, I, I think what we what we wanted to focus on really was the the difficulties of handling those situations in in the international context, mm-hmm. and um, and I think what we were looking at mainly is is 
the, a lot of other kind of human or softer considerations. I mean, there, you, we could have done a whole nother presentation on the kind of rigorous legal issues involved um, in, in responding to a trade secret uh, situation. Mm -hmm. But I think what we were looking at today had to do more with what are the other considerations that uh, that come into that come into play? And obviously, there's there's a requirement of having a, a strong legal background and knowing all the rules. But that's that only gets you halfway there. Mm -hmm. And so I think what um, what we were thinking when we were sitting down trying to come up with our topic for today was what what is something that maybe you don't always see during the lunchtime presentations mm -hmm. here. Um, where, which are sometimes, if I remember from my own experience, uh, more, you know, you'd get an outline. It was often very legal, uh, legal oriented, and this is kind of more of a behind-the-scenes look into some of the other uh, considerations that um, that come into play in handling uh, handling cases like this. Okay, so maybe the psychology of it all. Like That's where right. <laughs> yeah. there, there's your degree is finally coming handy. <laughs> So, yeah, so you listed, um, you, you sort of framed your talk around the injury to the corporate person. And so you talked about um, sort of four different steps that you take after someone comes to you with a problem where, like you said, maybe an employee is looking to go overseas or maybe there's some sort of international dispute that's arising. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, sort of those four stages that you um, look at whenever someone comes to you with an issue like that? So we focused on, one, stopping the bleeding, two, investigating the injury, three, reassuring the victim, and four, pursuing the perpetrator. And although a doctor probably doesn't generally, you know, do the fourth uh, step, you know, <laughs> they may be involved in a testimony in a trial, I suppose, but uh, we really, it is this human process where you are problem solving in a way that is not unlike a detective in a crime show. And so you're, you first want to make sure that the victim here, so your corporate client most likely, uh, is protected against future harm. So you want to patch up any leaks or holes or security breach opportunities. Uh, you then want to make sure you understand what actually happened because misinformation is very dangerous for your client and employees are not forensic analysts, they're not, they are not detectives. And so you need to get in there and make sure that uh, you know what the facts are. And you need to talk to the client, understand their goals. Tom talked about that a lot, uh, how you may want different things. You may want the information back very badly, but you also, you know, the client may be angry. Um, they may want to send a message to future perpetrators, um, whether it be their own employees or hackers. Um, and, and, you know, you want to take legal avenues to get relief. Right, and they may have, and a lot of times those goals might be inconsistent with each other. I mean, in a, in a trade secret situation uh, where you have, let's say, someone leaving to going to a competitor, the, the number one goal may be to prevent uh, the, the employee, the departed employee from joining the competitor. And you can achieve that in many different ways. You may work... Um, you may have a legal process directed to the, the departed employee who, who, who has taken the trade secret information, but you may also work directly with the competitor. Um, depending on the relationship with the competitor, um, they may not want uh, to be biting off a huge dispute um, 
especially if they think there's a possibility that, that the people that they have hired did take something. And, and it all depends. I mean, in, in situations where you have a large, um, sophisticated competitor, they are looking for, obviously, people who have experience maybe in the industry. That's why they went after your employees, because you, if you're in a, a similar industry. But they typically are not looking to get your stuff, all right, because that comes with a whole host of problems. And um, in a lot of situations, the, the, the employees, the departed employees, may be bringing stuff with them, thinking that their new employer will love them for it, when in fact their new employer, the la it's the last thing their new employer wants, is for them to have stolen anything from the prior, uh, from the prior employer. And so you have to, you know, be able to, it, it helps when you have a good relationship when the companies, maybe they've, uh, they've had prior relationships or, or they're in the industry is small enough that they deal with each other on a regular basis. And who knows, also you have to think about, listen, we may be hiring employees from that, from the competitor going the other direction. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we want to, we don't want to have a situation where, uh, there's going to be a huge dispute every time an employee goes back or forth. So we have to figure out a way to differentiate the normal mobility of employees, which especially in California is, mm -hmm. is, is guaranteed, essentially, okay. um, versus those special cases when you have trade secret theft or something like that that, that, that uh, elevates a particular situation out of that normal uh, that normal mode. So um, it's, I think, ideally, if you have a good relationship with the competitor um, or with the other party, that can, that can help. But then the, the second point is, you know, focusing on the departed employee himself, you have to think about, um, you know, how the goals of trying to get back whatever confidential information that that employee took. And now, especially with the, the easy digital uh, world, um, the fact that they've, in the, in the past, when I started practicing, a lot of trade secret cases were employee lists, right? And someone would steal the employee list from mm -hmm. a competitor, I mean, and, and go to a competitor with the employee list. And, and often you could, it was a physical list, and you would go after that, you would go after that list. Well, now, when the employee leaves and takes something, it's typically they're taking it in a, in, in a digital, Electronic. electronically, right. Right? right? And so that can be, any, that can be anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it can, be, can go to a competitor. It can go into the cloud. It can go, as we talked about during the session today, it could, you know, if, if the person chose to, they could go rogue and put it out on the Internet, uh, available to everyone. Right. Um, and so you, the... the Obtaining the return or controlling uh, where the stolen uh, confidential information is is a is of paramount importance because, you know, with the push of a button, uh, all of that um, could be could be lost, right. and so um, you have to figure out what is likely to be the best um, the best method for securing that information, and then the last piece is uh, we talked about the the punishment. I mean, there is obviously uh, some of this conduct is illegal. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just, you know, not just a violation of civil laws, it's criminally Ill, um, 
uh, illegal. And uh, the clients often, very understandably, are interested in pursuing, uh, as the victim of that crime, uh, pursuing uh, those, uh, that individual. But that may be inconsistent with some of the other goals. It may be that pursuing criminally is likely to may force the, the may make that individual desperate and have him put it up on the internet. Mm -hmm. So you you know the, it's a fine balance, and right. I think we talked a lot about um, having to having to gather as much information as possible and then using that information to try to strike the appropriate balance because there's no easy decisions. Every decision has, you know, on the other hand, if we, you know, right. and, and, uh, and so the, the goal for us as lawyers is to make sure the client is aware that each of these decisions has a flip side. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, well, first I think the goal is making them aware of all the decisions mm -hmm. and then making them aware that each of those decisions has a flip side. Right. Uh, and then, and then collaborate, you know, collaborating to figure out um, what to do. Right, like you mentioned, identifying what what their main goal is in the first place, and then sort of helping them fit uh, those particular decisions or paths uh, to a remedy or whatever with those particular goals. And their goals, their goals shift. Um, right. I mean, their their goals can shift during the case. I mean, there, there the example I gave. Uh, where we have a situation where there was a data breach, or a, a breach, and um, and the the one of the managers was uh, probably more conciliatory to the employees mm -hmm. until it was discovered that that the one of the employees had accessed that manager's emails, right? All right, his personal emails, mm -hmm. and and all of a sudden he then became you know he then became very strident right. in um, in his approach to the the case. And so, and you're having to deal with those, the emotions of people who, who uh, rightly or wrongly feel mm -hmm. that they have been, in some, kind, some cases, personally betrayed mm -hmm. by the individual, um, you know, a long-term employee. Uh, and as more data comes out, more evidence comes out, the, the feeling of betrayal may grow or may lessen. And, and so those the goals end up uh, shifting over time. So it's... Uh, it's a process that you have to kind of keep up on and then keep going back to uh, to make sure that you and the client remain in lockstep as, uh, as you go through the process. Right. And so maybe going back to just something even more basic, um, when people think of intellectual property protection, they're thinking usually of copyrights and patents because those are the things we usually see on the forefront. And it's in the Constitution, and there's all sorts of different policy rationales for providing copyright and patent protection for people. Um, how do trade secrets differ in your mind? And you know what, what makes it so personal to people when something like that might go out the door? Well, I think that the, the trade secrets differ in that there, there's, we don't have a uniform, uh, a uniform method of uh, dealing with trade secret or trade secret misappropriation. I mean, the, the patent rules, though they vary all over the world, mm -hmm. there is some general understanding of of the way the patent process works. Same with the copyright process. Um, there are kind of general accepted understandings. So trade secret is all over the map. I mean, until very recently, the, even in, within the United States, we had no kind of uniform, we had a uniform trade secrets act, but that, that wasn't, was uh, every state adopted its own version. Right. And we only recently have, with the Defend Trade Secrets Act, some 
uh, a federal cause of action for trade secret misappropriation. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then you multiply that, still, even with the federal cause of action, all the state causes of action have all varying differing requirements, uh, differing patterns, um, differing elements, and so uh, it's, it's, it's difficult, especially to, I mean, if you're trying to like research through cases even, trying to figure out whether something is actually a trade secret case or, or not, it can be very difficult. So we're hoping the, the, the new Defend Trade Secrets Act will give us some good headnotes that we can follow through. Uh, um, not that you use headnotes anymore, I don't know, that might be. <laughs> um, but in any event, that, that will help. And then, but multiply that on a global, from a global perspective where the global approach to trade secrets is all over the map. Mm -hmm. Um, even even further, and in a lot of cases, there is a even where there is a the legal foundation for the protection. There, in practice, there's not much that that exists, and so um, you know you have to look at you know what is the what is the approach to the rule of law in uh, the countries where you may be operating, mm -hmm. and what are your potential remedies, um, both. You know, on the books and in actuality, what are the likelihood of obtaining those remedies um, if something like this comes up? And those are all factors that the you know, that a client would have to consider in deciding whether to whether to base a, a business unit in any particular in any particular country. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what makes uh, the trade secret. Um, Trade secret law is so interesting because there is all of there. There's a lot of gray area, mm -hmm. and it's um, and it is also intensely personal, mm -hmm. um, because the 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 thought of I have something that's secret and that it's of value and that I have taken steps to protect mm -hmm. and that you have taken that and threatened to use it for your own purposes. I mean that's that goes to like that's as basic of a of a harm or a foul as as any you know five year old could tell you I mean that is that that's something at the very core of of um, of how we approach right and wrong uh, and and so it's it's much in that way it's much less technical than you know a patent well I get this for you know a certain period of time I mean it goes to your fifth grade your your five-year-old instinct of, of, of that's mine <laughs> and I hid it somewhere so precisely so you couldn't have it right. and you took it mm -hmm. and now you're using it and and that nothing could be more wrong than that and that's um, you know that's that permeates trade secret law uh, even at uh, you know that fifth grade understanding mm -hmm. in a way does permeate uh, the the whole field absolutely and I think the other side you know taking off your plaintiff's hat and putting on your defense attorney hat Sometimes the person who is committing the misappropriation feels just as personal about the object that has been taken. You know, they may have been the boots on the ground that helped develop this information, the customer list, or whatever it was, and so they feel entitled on some level to use it later in their career, even though that's improper. And so, you know, there are basically two fifth graders on uh, each side of the dispute. And a big part of getting in front of that is educating your employees and helping them understand what you're protecting as your own, even if they do have a hand in its creation. 
versus what is something that they can utilize later fairly in, in their career. Right. And so working on the litigation side, how much of that are, are either of you involved in as far as advising a client on, you know, on the front side of things before anything happens preemptively? Here are some things that we can do to prevent possible litigation or possible issues from coming up. Well, we, uh, it would be better if there was more of that, but unfortunately, especially on the trade secret side, it, it generally comes up more after the fact. I mean, um, I, I also do a lot of data and uh, data security and cybersecurity law, and there I think people have gotten into the notion that they need to be very active at preempting because everyone knows you know, that if they hold any, any uh, information of potential value that they will try to be hacked. You know, someone will try to get at it. Um, and so they, you know, go through a lot of steps to protect that. The trade secret, on the trade secret side, it's, it's a little less direct because I think people, uh, people don't necessarily want to think that one of their own employees are just going to copy something and try to take it. Um, where everyone seems very clear that, that someone from the outside could try to hack into our system. Mm-hmm. So they, it just goes against the kind, of, uh, the kind of mentality that most companies have at some level, that we're all in this together, and of course no one would ever try to, no one would ever try to pull that here. And also I think a lot of the companies are worried that s- many of the steps that they have to take might interfere with the culture of the of the enterprise, mm-hmm. uh, and that you know the the ability as you start, you know, limiting where people can work and what they can work on and how they have to access it and all those things, start some people might think eroding kind of this collegial culture that we have mm-hmm. where where everyone is is going to be able to work on everything everyone has access mm-hmm. to everything that they need and that we're all in this together. Which could in turn cause the very problem that they're right. trying to prevent. Exactly, okay. but but they, you know, that the culture clash often it, it often takes an instant like this, where especially with working with uh, younger companies, startup companies, where where everyone is in it together until they aren't, right? Until the first person leaves to go to a competitor, mm-hmm. and then then everyone says, well, oh, you know. Why did he have access to this? He never needed that. And and why did he do this? Or how? Do, why did we allow him to do this? Or why did we allow him to access uh, the data from his home computer? Or why? Did, you know, all kinds of questions start coming up, right. and um, and so I think that um, I, I think that the the best managed companies have are try to look at those things and try to develop their policies. With our clients, we try to get our clients to adopt the policies that would be uh, that would constitute best practices mm-hmm. um, to prevent these kind of things. But at some level, um, it, you know, at some level, these are your trusted employees, and there there is always going to be a tension between the trust that you're placing in your employees and and the employee's ability to potentially violate that trust. And those two things will always always be in tension, and um, and that's you know that's where we that's the the area of trade secret law where we live right. um, is that is at that point of tension. Great. Well, the last question that we like to ask all of our interviewees 
is uh, what what do you consider uh, tech law to be? Like, if you had to put a fine definition on it, what would you say it is? And each of you can give your own spin. Well, uh, that's interesting. I mean, I the the high tech what used to be called here at Bolt the high tech law journal mm-hmm. that was started a year before I got here, and I was I was on the on the journal for all three years, and um, I look back at our initial early volumes of the journal and look at the issues that we covered and you know we 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 had a journal that was really devote one issue that was really devoted to space law and one issue that was devoted to you know bi- whether it was ethical to bioengineer your kids mm-hmm. and we had I- issues i mean if you i'm sure they have them somewhere back in the office <laughs> you can find them um, and I, I mean the thing about the tech, tech law that I see is so great is that it's, it's so limitless and, the, and there, are, there are tech issues that abound um, that everywhere and, and the, um, you know, the interaction or the intersection between technology um, and kind of human, human behavior is really what I find the most import, uh, interesting thing about practicing, uh, practicing law because whether it's, you know, looking on the privacy side about like Paul Schwartz, or Professor Schwartz and I have a long ongoing conversation about the psychology of consent. Mm-hmm. Like so much of our privacy laws is focused on um, disclosing what you're gonna do with the data and the other person then will provide consent to that. And there's great literature on the psychology of consent and how you can manipulate consent and everything. And those are these fascinating interactions that um, that again are on the you know the psychology of human behavior human behavior on the one hand and and technology on the other and that's what I find uh, that's what I find the most interesting so I think those the technology issues are going to are abound everywhere and um, and I wouldn't I wouldn't narrow them down to any piece because I think they uh, it's it's unnecessarily kind of limiting uh, what what we as technology lawyers uh, can do. And I think that it's technology and the law is the, the intersection is going to be inescapable. Every company, whether they're a software company or they're based in Silicon Valley uh, or they're an app, um, is going to have to have a website most likely or is going to create a device that eventually is communicating with other devices through networks and at the end of the day has some technology base and and so it's lawyers are going to need to understand how technology is evolving and how it works and how the law is likewise evolving to adapt and um, understand you know what the path is going to be for each new scenario that hasn't existed in the literature for a hundred years because it couldn't have and uh, so I think this is the right journal to be on, and <laughs> you guys are the future. <laughs> well, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Sure. Um, yeah. Right. Okay, thanks, guys. Right. Thank you. And that'll do it for this episode of Do You Even Have a Tech Degree? Thanks again to Thomas Counts and Danielle Decker. And, of course, a thanks to our sponsor, the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology and the Berkeley Technology Law Journal. As always, I'm your host, Patrick Johnson, and along with my co-host, Shante Westmoreland, wishing you a great day. Take care.